Today's episode is sponsored by EditPods. EditPods provide full-service podcast editing that's all in one podcast editing without breaking the bank. Now, one of the biggest problems that I have when running this podcast is the time it takes to edit, clip, upload, and post my podcast in all of the right places with some new artwork, links, descriptions, and all of the jazz that comes along with it. Now, what EditPods do is help podcasters skip all the hassle and focus directly on making the best show possible, freeing our minds to help hone the craft instead of spending time writing copy and doing transcripts and finding links, all of these time-consuming activities. So EditPods work with podcasters that want to focus their time on areas of excellence and take the rest off their plate. If that sounds good to you, you can use the coupon code CHATTER to get $30 off basic or plus or $50 off a premium for the first month. That's CHATTER, C-H-A-T-T-E-R, for $30 or $50 off your first month at EditPods. Make podcasting fun again. So hello, everyone. Um, welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I am here with Dr. Michael Nevridakis, who is a writer for The Defender. Um, doctor, welcome to the show. Josh, great to be with you. No problem. Do you mind if I go with Michael? Dr. Nevridakis seems a bit formal. Is that all right? Michael's fine. Okay, wonderful. So uh, I first came across your work um, when I read a piece from yourself um, that was actually it had been posted on... Um, it's been posted on a GameStop-related subreddit, so I'm writing a book about about the the GameStop uh, community and all the things that, that have happened since then. And um, yeah, they, they they talk a lot about sort of the quite possible pending economic collapse, and therefore you know this had come across their yeah across their desk. And then it is basically a, a summation of a, a war games program that was run uh, on global financial collapse, and I was stunned and very intrigued given um yeah as we mentioned before we started about event 201 that had uh, occurred just before the start of the pandemic which was essentially like a war gaming of um what a global flu pandemic might look like and and how it might sort of unfold and what the responses would be and it's all very uh lined up very neatly with what happened um as a result of covid now that doesn't necessarily mean they had any sort of idea that it was coming in advance. It just means that it's a good way of looking at how these international bodies and how the sort of rich and powerful might respond. And it shows you if they have written it down, that then when it comes to something like that actually happening, they're likely to follow this plan. So that said, um, would you like to give like a brief summation of, um, yeah, just just the war games that they went through and the things they sort of looked at, and then we'll go into it in more detail. Absolutely, yes. So the uh, the powers that be, as I like to call them, all these international entities like the World Economic Forum, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and many others, which we can get into later, seem to have a remarkable ability to um, predict things that uh, later on end up happening. Now, whether or not there's advanced knowledge or whether or not they just come up with all these different scenarios and some of them end up actually being true. You know, we could speculate on that, but the article that you're referring to, which I think is a good way to start out this discussion is one that I wrote in early January for the Defender. Uh, I have it open in front of me. The title is International Finance Leaders Hold War Game Exercise Simulating Global Financial Collapse. Should we be worried? So, I found, you know, when I came across this topic and just, I don't even remember where I first saw it, but uh, I, I think by chance, I read about this particular war game exercise, as they're calling it. Um, I proposed it to my editors and they asked me to run with the story. And I, I was just fascinated by what they were up to with this exercise back in December. I wrote the article in January, but this took place in December. So what happened was uh, back in December 2021, um, something known as the Collective Strength Initiative was held for 10 days. It was originally supposed to be held in Dubai, uh, but at the time, that's when the Omicron variant had first appeared. And concerns over this variant led to this collective strength exercise being relocated to Jerusalem and specifically to 
the Israeli finance ministry. So this was a 10-day exercise, and there were 10 countries that were involved in this collective strength exercise. Uh, Israel as the, as the new host of this exercise, but also the US was there, Germany, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Italy, Austria, uh, the United Arab Emirates, where this was originally going to take place. Thailand was there as well. And then uh, some major international actors were also there. So uh, they included the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and also the Bank of International Settlements. And what's interesting is that they themselves, and certainly the mainstream media news outlets that wrote about this, including Reuters, described this collective strength um, exercise as a war game. So that was their phrase, not mine. And as you said in the, int uh, in the introduction, the idea here was to model uh, a hypothetical scenario where there would be an economic collapse. So specifically, uh, they actually modeled several scenarios. So this would include um, the leaking of sensitive financial data on the so-called dark web. That was one scenario. Another scenario were hacks, as they put it, targeting the global foreign exchange system. Uh, and then in the aftermath of these sorts of hy uh, hypothetical scenarios, um, what would happen in case there's, there were bank runs, you know, people running to the banks to get their money out, uh, and what they described as market chaos that would be fueled by so-called fake news. But that was just one component of this exercise. Um, it didn't really seem to actually be so much uh, about simulating these potential cyber attacks or these potential attacks on the financial system, but um, there was a, a very big focus on strengthening what they called global cooperation in the financial sector and in cybersecurity. And part of what was discussed in relation to this uh, included things such as um, multilateral, multination responses to a hypothetical global financial crisis, um, and such things as a coordinated delinking from um, major currencies, grace periods for uh, debt repayment on the part of various nations. Um, and anyone that's listening to this may begin to see that some of these things are sounding very familiar hmm. in light of uh, more recent developments in the global economy. So this appeared to be the main thrust of uh, what took place back in December with collective strength. Okay, so um, I think what would be interesting, actually, would be to, to sort of go into some of these, like, um, scenarios that they've laid out as to like things that, that you've pointed there in the article like the the hypothetical large-scale attacks in the financial sector the leaking of financial data in the dark web but most interestingly i think the one to start with is the bank runs because that's the thing perhaps we've that like people would be most familiar with and the thing that's like looks like it may already be starting to happen in in china um so when we talk about bank runs and market chaos fueled by fake news, to me, this sounds like bank runs and market chaos caused by the truth. <laughs> and and the, 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 the similarities between the way they talk about this, like this, every, every chaotic scenario now, or every plan seems to be lay, like started by laying out, it's like, okay, so here's how we counter people saying the wrong thing. Why do you like? Is it because these events are just like the perfect reason for people to just clamp down on any sort of like countervailing, like anti-mainstream narrative, or, or you know, in many cases, the truth? Well, that countervailing narrative, as you just described it, Josh, uh, oftentimes the euphemism they use for it is fake news. Hmm. Uh, or disinformation or misinformation. And in some of the other articles that I've written in recent weeks for The Defender, I've covered some of those issues as well, including uh, fact-checking entities on social media and how 
they're oftentimes connected to these same entities that are coming out and doing these exercises and making these uh, incredible predictions about what's going to happen, either in terms of a, a new pandemic or in terms of uh, some type of uh, financial collapse or bank run, as we're discussing now. You mentioned China. Uh, I had come across rumors maybe about a week ago or so that something like that was happening in Russia. I haven't heard anything more about it since, however, but sometimes even the rumors are enough to create enough, let's say, fear and concern on the part of uh, the public uh, that could, under certain circumstances, actually create a bank run in uh, some part of the world. And what's also interesting is, you know, the timing of our discussion, we're talking right now on uh, July 6th, uh, it was July 5th, 2015, so almost exactly seven years ago, that here where I am right now in Greece, there was a referendum held, uh, which the simplistic way that the media presented it as was a referendum to essentially stay in the Eurozone or leave the Eurozone, even though that was actually not what, what the referendum was asking. Uh, it was essentially a referendum that had a very long convoluted question, which boiled down to, do we accept this package of austerity measures that have been proposed to us by the IMF, also involved in collective strength, uh, the European Union and the European Central Bank, uh, or do we reject this package of proposals? So these austerity measures would have meant more cuts to salaries, to pensions, to social services, to the welfare state, and so on, um, more reductions in government spending. And this was already with, with Greece, being about five years into a, a major economic crisis. So uh, this referendum created a lot of market concerns and never fears of a bank run. Now, how likely a bank run actually was, I am not sure. But I think sometimes if the media create a climate where they keep referring to this as a possibility. And as you see my, uh, <laughs> I have a guest with me here. <laughs> um, if they sort of, sort of treat this environment by constantly saying, oh, there's going to be a collapse, there's gonna be a collapse or people are going to start running to the bank to get their money out. Um, it can either create an environment where such a bank run will take place or as what actually happened in Greece back in June of 2015, they imposed capital control on the banks supposedly to prevent preemptively a bank run. So you could only withdraw from a Greek bank account from an ATM or even from going inside to the teller at the bank 50 euros a day. So this created massive problems for people that needed to get money out of their bank accounts and they were not able to do so. So you could imagine how difficult it was to make big purchases back then, for instance. Yeah. And there ended up being lines at the banks, but it wasn't so much a bank run as much as because people were limited in what they could get out every day. They had to keep going back to the ATM if they needed more money. Uh, so there were lines, there were queues at, at uh, ATMs all over Greece in June and July of 2015. There was no actual bank run, though, but they created these conditions of instability and fear. So something similar could be done again, and it could be done not just in Greece, but in all sorts of different places. Um, and I think what we've been seeing in the last few weeks and months with inflation, with uh, oil and gas prices, with... Um, or food shortages, or at least the media talking about food shortages, uh, with the Ukraine and Russia, all these, all these events are coming together to create a climate where there is indeed a lot of uh, economic instability. And in such a climate, it wouldn't surprise me to see, um, you know, something going wrong somewhere and a bank run uh, following from that. Yeah, I mean, we're in, a, we're in a concerning position. I mean, for, for people that don't understand what a bank run is, maybe um, it's worth mentioning that it's it's basically when everyone thinks the bank has no more money and they go to take all the money out because they're like, shit, what if the bank goes under? I better get all my money out. And then everyone goes to take all their money out and the bank goes under because everyone's taking their money out. 
<laughs> essentially <laughs> it's like it's like that simpson scene where homer says the uh, or when not homer where bart says the the bank has no more uh, you know he's in there's like what do you mean the bank's only got enough money for the next three customers <laughs> it's basically yeah what happens but i mean it it's normally driven by by fears uh, that are it never gets to the point of a bank run until like there's actually like a problem generally um and at which point they somehow blame the people for wanting their money um, after bankrupting themselves, but anyway, uh, the thing that I wanted—I wanted to actually ask about about Greece here, because um, I thought I—I I kind of thought we'd we'd get into this this topic, and yeah, so I I a lot of my sort of understanding of of the the IMF and of some of these like large financial institutions is basically shaped around. Um, around Naomi Klein essentially and 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 her writing about about the IMF and about um people like Jeffrey Sachs um and people who yeah just just these these large financial institutions that seem to be outrageously powerful um to the point where you can't say no to them they 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 it's like take this loan or that's it like they did, did it in a lot of countries like um who were in in the former Yugoslavia, with a lot of countries who were who were trying to recover um, in the post-Soviet uh, world, and they they basically like they write their list of demands, which a lot of the time tends to be like opening up their natural resources to yeah be plundered by massive international firms, um, quite often American. Um, but Greece like voted no, like you 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 it went to the referendum. Um, and Greece decided, no, we don't want to take this bailout package. And then, like, days later, you just did anyway. And uh, like, what is it like to be... Were you in Greece at that time? Or at least, like, do you know what the, the sentiment was? It was just like, okay, so you've you've elected a government on the basis that you don't want to put up with this. They've negotiated. They've, you know, put it to a referendum. The people have spoken. You know, they're not going to, like, they don't want to be held to ransom by these massive, unaccountable, in many cases, like, global financial institutions. And then they just capitulate to them anyway. Like, what does that feel like in, in Greece or in, as, as a Greek? It was awful. And I was in Greece in the summer of 2015, before, during, and after the referendum. So I saw the whole issue transpire from beginning to end. And I had written some articles about it back then and published on various sites. Um, even before the referendum in a, in a couple of the pieces that I wrote, I essentially, one could even say predicted uh, that, you know, this referendum, even, uh, even if no passes, and I was saying that it would at the same time that the media and the mainstream polls were saying, oh, it's neck and neck or yes is ahead of no. Um, I think everyone that was actually in Greece and didn't have a vested interest in saying uh, something that was the opposite of reality yeah. uh, understood that no would win and no did win. It was um, 61 point something percent uh, in favor of uh, of no in rejecting yeah. the, uh, the austerity proposal. And like you said, the, the same government, which was a government that was elected, to stand up to the IMF and the European Union and the European Central Bank and all of these different bankers yeah. capitulated. They ended up agreeing to a very similar agreement. It wasn't the exact same one. So they could say, well, you've, you said no to, to, you know, to this proposal in the uh, referendum, but we did a different one. So um, I had written ahead of time that something like that could happen because the question that uh, was on the ballot in a referendum was so convoluted and it was so specific to this one proposal that it kind of was open-ended. Okay, so you you reject this proposal, but it, it doesn't say what happens next. It doesn't say no and we will leave the, the Eurozone or no and we will leave the European Union. It was just, we reject it. Okay, what follows after that? You know, no one was told. And the government wasn't coming out to tell the people, if you vote no, these are going to be our next steps. Um, there was nothing like that. So everyone was very excited uh, when, um, not everyone, but obviously with 61 point something percent, most people were very excited. 
when no prevailed. Um, if nothing else, because the entire media ecosystem in Greece was in favor of yes, just as they were in favor of all of the austerity measures. Um, <laughs> Funny that, isn't and it? yeah, it, it, they were to use a word that's come up again during COVID times. They were in lockstep. They were all saying the same thing. There was no counter narrative in the media uh, of um, of any significance. So this includes TV, it includes newspapers, it includes websites. Um, so the government came back within a week or two and agreed to a new to a new set of austerity proposals. It became the third memorandum or the third set of uh, austerity measures that Greek that Greece implemented, and those measures uh, remained in place for several years afterwards until the um, crisis officially, <laughs> in quotes, ended. Hmm. Um, around 2018, 2019, even though in reality, Greece is still under IMF and EU and European Central Bank oversight. Wow, I didn't know that. Around 20, oh yes, yeah, until 2060. Uh, and of course, a lot of the 20, damage- 2060? 2060, yes, yeah, so what, 38, like, is, yeah, yeah, 38 years from now. What um, the fuck? So they could just, are they just like, hang on, are they just like in charge of Greece? Like if they don't like some, some like economic policy that Greece is- is like implementing, oh. can they just be like, no? Essentially, that's what they can do because they can review proposed budgets, proposed spending. Uh, in other words, Greece doesn't operate as a sovereign or autonomous country. It really didn't even before all of this, but it's kind of even more official now. And that's in addition to all of the damage that was done by all of the austerity packages that came in from all of the different governments because so many important Greek assets were sold off to, pri uh, to private companies that were usually not Greek. So whether we're talking about major airports, highways, airports, harbors, uh, all sorts of other strategically important sites around the country, uh, public lands and so on, uh, they were sold and they were sold at ridiculous prices. For instance, the National Railroad was sold for, for about 40 million euros and they're, and they're getting state money on top of that. Um, so essentially you could say that the company that got them, which is from Italy, essentially got it for free because they're, they're getting money back from the government as well. I, you can buy a luxury yacht for more than 40 million euros. So just ridiculous terms. Uh, the Chinese purchased Greece's largest harbor, which is also one of the largest ones in Europe. Um, a German company, which actually belongs to, to the German state, uh, purchased uh, over a dozen airports in Greece and actually uh, airports that are in some of the busiest uh, tourist locations in the country. So they're very lucrative airports. Um, so all of this is money that is not going to the Greek treasury anymore because it, it, uh, these assets belong to private hands. So this is where you mentioned Naomi Klein and those types of uh, people that had written about this sort of disaster capitalism. Naomi Klein was visiting Greece a lot back in the 2013, 2014, 2015 era. I was hosting a podcast and radio show back then. I never was able to interview her, but I did interview someone who has written very similar things, uh, John Perkins, also known as the economic hitman. He worked for the World Bank. Uh, he quit and he came out with this book about a decade or so ago called Confessions of an Economic Hitman, explaining how international financial bodies like the World Bank operate. And it's exactly what he said before, Josh. They go in and they basically dictate firms to cash strap governments and oftentimes very corrupt governments as well. And they tell them, um, we are going to bail out, supposedly, your country will give you a billion dollars or whatever, uh, but uh, these are the terms, take it or leave it. So you have to sell off your airports, you have to sell off your harbors, uh, and uh, preferably sell them off to our, uh, our partners in these specific uh, companies from these specific countries. Um, and then, as you can imagine, oftentimes corruption takes hold in these sorts of deals as well, kickbacks, all sorts of uh, things like that going on as well. So I interviewed John Perkins back in 2013, and he he felt that Greece was a, a textbook study, a textbook example 
of the sort of um, um, this sort of action on the part of international financial bodies. In, in the case of Greece, it wasn't so much the World Bank, but it was the IMF, and then it was the European Central Bank, and then it was other international banks as well. Mm. Yeah, and they, they're all under, maybe not the control, but they, they all share this Chicago boys, like free market neoliberal economic outlook, whereby like the... I like to define it in with in like this, like a three pronged thing. It's like the the elimination of as much regulation as possible and red tape, the the cutting of corporate and well corporate taxes and and taxes on the wealthy, and um, the sale of state assets and the sort of yeah, just the 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 looting of the state essentially as as you you've described there beautifully and the the really sad thing is is exactly what you've described there is exactly what happened in Britain um, first in a in a small way in the nineteen seventies and eighties um, and then in a really large way in two thousand ten eleven twelve and and beyond for Britain as uh, the Conservatives just yeah it was a fire sale I was reading through um, I was I was bringing it up on the screen for people to see actually. I laughed and also sort of, yeah. Um, in the fire sale uh, in Greece, uh, Johnny Depp got an Aegean island of Strogilo. Strug- uh, uh, yes, probably, I think that's Probably it. butchered that. But for 4.2 million, <laughs> like you sold an island to Johnny Depp? Like what? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah, islands were sold. Uh, I think uh, some oligarchs got some other islands, including the one that used to belong to... Um, Aristotle Onassis, uh, other celebrities came in, and if they didn't buy an entire island, they at least bought large homes and large pieces of land on various islands, like Tom Hanks is one example. Uh, his wife is Greek-American, by the way, and then Tom Hanks got Greek citizenship as well. Oh, very nice. Uh, which is interesting because there's Greeks, I mean, there's people of Greek descent uh, the live overseas. Uh, I was one of them because I was born and raised in New York. Um, and even though Greece has a law that says, even if one of your great grandparents was Greek, you, you qualify for citizenship, actually getting it, hmm. it usually involves an unbelievable bureaucratic runaround. So um, that was not the case for Tom Hanks. He got uh, he got citizenship immediately, and then it, it it goes into all sorts of other areas as well. Like I'll give a quick example. Right now, uh, in the last few days, there's been major forest fires, in, which happens practically every summer. Uh, it's very sad. It's very unfortunate. Um, the probably the worst kept secret in Greece is that most of these fires are deliberate. Um, this was certainly the case last year. There were these huge fires outside of Athens and in some other parts of the country. And uh, after last year's fires, the government said that they're going to revamp their entire strategy to you know, plan for and fight forest fires and we'll get new, um, you know, new planes and helicopters that will, you know, help in the fight against these fires and drop water and fire retardant from above and all of these things. And they brought in a new civil protection minister from Cyprus uh, who was not a Greek citizenship. He got Greek citizenship overnight. Um, and he's barely been heard from since. And these new fires uh, occurred in the past week or so. One of them actually very close to where one of last year's major fires were. Um, if you ask me what he said about these incidents in the past week, I wouldn't know because I haven't seen his name mentioned anywhere. Mm. Um, but he's there. There's no resignations in Greece. These things happen again and again. And because you were asking me before about the mood in Greece, specifically you know, in 2015 after the referendum, well, the mood is very similar now. Um, the, the people in Greece are essentially defeated. I'm, it, it's painful to say this, but it's true because they're numb to everything. They, they were protesting. They're not protesting anymore. They're not protesting this, at the very least, awful fire management, you know, to not say that anything more nefarious is going on. Uh, they never protested what were the, the strictest COVID measures in Europe. Uh, some of which are still in place. Uh, 
Um, they never really essentially protested a fine on um, unvaccinated 60-year-olds and above that was recently upheld by the uh, the highest court in Greece as constitutional. Is that going to go to the European court? Surely it will. I would imagine it will. I just don't know how long it's going to take. And in the meantime, I don't know if, uh, because the fine has been sort of what they, they, they describe it as having been postponed for the summer. I don't know if they're going to bring it back in the fall. A lot of people feel that uh, that's going to happen. Uh, I guess it remains to be seen uh, what happens come September or October. Uh, but anything that has to do essentially with corruption, with broken promises from the whatever government is in power, from um, uh, these sorts of privatizations, from a poor economy, from high unemployment, from low wages, uh, energy prices, which are insane in Greece. Um, people in the last few months, just ordinary households, you know, two or three people living in an apartment, getting electric bills of 500, 600, 700, 800 euros. Um, Whereas before they were getting bills of maybe 100 euros or 150. So uh, energy prices have gone way, way up beyond the means of most people to afford those bills. Um, and uh, gas prices or, or petrol prices are very high. There Greece is in the top 10 worldwide, if I'm not mistaken. And no one protests anything because they've kind of just, they're just accepting it at this point. They, and if you ask them, you'll get responses like, well, we protested and nothing happened, nothing changed and we're tired and you just can't protest anymore. Or they'll just say, that's how things are in Greece. It's Greek reality. Um, there's nothing we can do about it. That's just how we are. So it, it's become a very defeatist uh, mentality. So any protests that do take place are very small and they're not enough to move the needle. So that was the case in 2015. There were, even though there were big gatherings before the referendum, especially the one, the gathering in favor of no was huge. Once that no was overturned, protests were organized, but I doubt there were even a thousand people there. People just sort of uh, stayed home and kept their heads down essentially. And it's very unfortunate, but that's what happened. And it's still happening. That's yeah, that's sad. I'm just the, the apathy. And I'd like that's not saying that the Greeks are alone. I think a lot of a lot of places are witnessing some some serious apathy. Apart from the Dutch at the minute, apparently, <laughs> um, the who are who are yeah showing the government how it's done. Um, but the to to move back to the sort of thing we were we were um, initially planning to talk about um, was yeah. So some of the other scenarios in which um these war games were being played out for for some sort of like global financial collapse which um people can go and look at the the, the back catalog of this uh podcast there's many in which i just have discussed how, why that might happen um most uh the best ones probably uh with christopher leonard fed pilled you can search um but anyway the yeah they, they're predicting like large-scale attacks on the financial sector like hacks targeting the global foreign currency exchange and the leaking of financial data on the dark web so what sort of like how do you think this this would play out so like hypothetically the crash could come along and then i don't know people are pissed because like the the financial system is collapsing so they start like i don't know trying to steal data dump it on the dark web to me, this seems to be laying the ground for, okay, we're going to try and wrap up anybody involved in any sort of protest against what then may be coming. Um, okay, if that involves maybe illegal hacks, you probably shouldn't be involved. But at the same time, it feels like they're they're preparing to counter these kind of measures. Like, how likely do you think that these sorts of, of things are, are to happen? Because like, we didn't see anything like that in 2008, or do you think we're in like a totally different era? I kind of sense we're in a different era now, and it wouldn't surprise me to see something like um, some type of uh, illegal leak take place. Who would be behind the leak uh, is another story, but what sort I wouldn't of leak, be surprised. Hang on, before, sorry, just what sort of leak do you think would be damaging? Because like anyone that watches this show regularly will know that the 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 House committee that was called together after like the meme stock event of last year. 
delivered their report in which it basically is 277 pages of confession about how the financial system is broken, corrupt, fraudulent, and that they're not going to do anything about it. Like we see the pan, we've seen the Panama Papers, the Pandora Papers, and the Paradise Papers all come out, all huge leaks of just like a glimpse of how massively out of sight the the financial elite keep their keep their their money and their dealings and and their assets and none of these things have caused just like it's a ripple it's nothing like what sort of leak do you think would be significant enough like would it have to literally be them like scheming together like all of them like all of the the, the largest financial institutions all on a chat like the the ceos <laughs> being like okay so we're gonna crash the economy on thursday and then, like, I don't know, meme reacts and like, what? What do you think would cause like any sort of outrage? <laughs> you know, you know that, that's an excellent point, Josh, and I'm glad you brought it up. And as as ridiculous as it sounds, and it almost does sound like a joke, um, I think anything short of like a really, really big smoking gun like that, where there, where there's like a recording or some type of document that basically lays out as as explicitly as possible. Uh, some kind of really awful plan uh, of theirs for either having to do with the economy or something like COVID or something else. Uh, I think short of that, people are numb. It's the apathy we're talking about. I mean, you mentioned the Panama Papers and all these other very large and very significant leaks that have come out in recent years, and they haven't really moved the needle either. And I think part of it just has to do with the fact that people are accustomed to you know, news coming out that politicians and people that are in these sorts of positions are corrupt. So it almost kind of becomes a situation where it's like, yeah, okay, well, it's more of the same. We knew that already. We knew these people are uh, are corrupt and they do things like this. So I think it really had, you know, for, for these sorts of leaks to really resonate with people, they have to be far stronger than what's come out in recent years. Um, and even then we'll have to see how people actually react because I mean, who knows really, uh, the point I was going to make though, is that let's say something like this comes out, or even let's say it's something kind of similar in some ways to the Panama papers, but maybe it has less to do with like offshore bank accounts and things like that. And more to do with planning and scenarios that they're involved in, in some way. Well, um, I think in a situation like this, it wouldn't surprise me to see governments and uh, private entities like telecommunications providers, internet service providers, clamp down on the spread of that information. It could very easily be classified as fake news, as disinformation, as information that's dangerous in some form or another for, uh, uh, for society and uh, dangerous to sort of be circulating. And it could just be uh, very effectively shut down. And it wouldn't surprise me to see a scenario where people that are caught, quote unquote, spreading this information are arrested, prosecuted, harassed. Um, it already happens at a very low scale. And we also have seen an example of information just being removed. Uh, I mean, just try to visit RT in Europe right now without, you know, bypassing these restrictions with like a VPN or something like that. You can't, they blocked it. And these are the same people that talk about things like net neutrality and an open internet. And they're the ones that are shutting down portions of the internet that they don't agree with. Uh, so they could take that model and apply it if they wanted to, to all sorts of other things and it could expand it. So, um, you know, this is this pure speculation, obviously, but you know, um, uh, certainly we see some precedents that um, kind of could lead us to, to, you know, to sort of think of scenarios that would be a continuation of what they've already done. So uh, I could see something like that happening; it wouldn't surprise me. And then what would then happen is, you know, any any sort of counter narrative could very easily be. Um, removed from the internet or people could be intimidated to the point where they would be reluctant to share such information mm. uh, because of possible repercussions. And we already see this happening privately. I mean, Facebook, Twitter, all of these uh, social media platforms 
um, hand out those 30-day bans and those suspensions like candy nowadays, but they do so rather selectively uh, to certain types of narratives and not others. I mean, I can even give personal examples. I've been not just harassed, but like completely uh, uh, attacked by certain people uh, on Twitter in the past, for instance, and nothing happens to them uh, because they were saying the right things and I, and I wasn't, evidently. But if you're saying the wrong things, you can get your account removed on Twitter, you can get uh, consecutive 30-day bans on Facebook. Uh, I mean, you can be essentially what they call deplatformed. So deplatforming could be ratcheted up. Uh, why stop here? They could keep going with it if they if they really felt uh, that there was a need uh, to do so. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 concerning how how some of this information, especially about the financial system, is already like semi banned. Like there's the there's this um, there's this website called uh, Wall Street on Parade. I don't know if you're familiar with it, um, and it's run by like a husband and wife uh, couple whose name completely escapes me at this ma- at this moment i think it's russ and pam martins um but don't quote me on that um but they their website is fucking banned on reddit and it's the most credible coverage of of like the, the corruption and like not even just the corruption like they're the people actually watching the financial news and the business news and actually telling you the really big stories about the massive bailouts people are getting like prosecution things against them like just anything that sh- like things that you, you like, i read that thing and i'm like how the fuck is this real and that's not front page news and and the, the, this like information siloing is already happening where where this the 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 mainstream press seem to have been at least semi successful in creating this this world in which if they don't talk about it it doesn't exist. It's like fucking. I was talking yesterday to the, this guy Tom Burgess uh, who wrote a book called Kleptopia, and I was like, oh, how does no one care about Hunter Biden's laptop? Like no one's denying that the emails are real, right? And it's like displaying monstrous levels of corruption. And yet, nothing. So therefore, doesn't exist. Just doesn't exist. And like, it really makes you wonder about like where, where the fuck we're going with, 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 with that world. But like, I wanted, to, I wanted to move like a little bit towards um, some of your other writing um, that you've done recently. Um, mainly about sort of like the future of education um and the metaverse and virtual reality because like that that i find really fascinating because there was a, a period in my life in which i would have thought that sounded fucking cool and that using ai um to like improve education um sounded brilliant and that like the metaverse like sounded cool as fuck it's like oh my god no way it'll be like that futurama episode where they go into the internet um and then the more that i've seen namely the World Economic Forum, um, very, very keen on this idea, has made me very sceptical. Um, so do you want to maybe like uh, talk a little bit about some some of the, the articles and the stuff you've written about, like the basically what their vision is for education in the future and why they see the metaverse as being such a huge thing? And then we can maybe talk a little bit about it. Uh, uh, absolutely. And... Um... Uh, as far as the metaverse goes, I've written a couple of articles about the uh, about the topic recently for uh, the Defender. Yes, I'm currently and pulling them I, up I, so I, people can see them while you're talking. Right, and I, I get the sense that even these two pieces, even though they were fairly comprehensive, are actually only scratching the surface because uh, they focused on specific aspects of uh, how entities like the World Economic Forum are foreseeing the future. So, specific education, for instance. So if we look at um, uh, what the World Economic Forum and its participants at their annual meeting this year, which was in late May, what they were saying about the future of education, well, they foresee a future of education, first of all, that will be heavy on artificial intelligence, on virtual reality, and on essentially teaching tools that will be based in the metaverse in one form or another. And in some ways that may sound very cool and it sound it may sound sound like something that is sort of just going to move um, education systems forward into you know a, a rapidly changing future. But I think just as with you know anything else that's technology related, um, 
you know, there's good ways to apply new technological innovations and there's not so So the WF is sort of using these examples in the, um, the reports and papers and articles that it's writing about this topic to sort of say things like, well, uh, schools even before COVID were underfunded. A lot of schools are unable to provide things like laboratories where students can do hands-on work. Uh, and learn in a hands-on sort of way. Um, so the solution, according to the WEF, is not to provide better funding to these schools so that they can offer this sort of learning in these sorts of laboratories. Their solution is to instead take that money uh, and in fact take very significant sums of money and invest it in um, AI and VR virtual reality technology for school. So how would that work out? Well. They give an example, for instance, of how a medical student could uh, learn uh, to perform surgery in a virtual reality uh, emergency room, for instance, mm. rather than a real one. Um, mm. Or, you know, some other student could uh, be introduced to, I don't know, you know, some type of uh, workshop in uh, a virtual form rather, you know, than... Uh, having to access a, a real workshop to learn how to, I don't know, do, you know, build things with wood or whatever. I'm just, you know, coming up with yeah, a, yeah. a random Yeah, just doing, doing like complex and complex and, and expensive, like practice things that, things that aren't like naturally, like very, very available. Like you can't like, and, and it's bit like, like this isn't like a horrible idea to me. It's because like, oh, like your flight simulators, right? They they've worked fantastically for many years in teaching pilots how to how to how to do the thing. The thing that's like really insidious to me is like who the fuck are these people, and why have they declared themselves the 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 architects of our future? <laughs> right. They they seem to have uh, nominated themselves. No one has appointed the WEF. No one has voted for them or for its uh, leadership. Uh, and yet they're there and they're very open about um, coming out and saying that uh, they're the ones that are determining uh, future developments. And what's also insidious is that they're not limiting themselves to just expanding, um, you know, simulated learning. You gave a very good example before flight simulators, for instance. Uh, there was a WEF report that I was looking at and that I mentioned in one of my articles that foresaw four possible paths for what education could be like in, in the not too distant future. And one of these four scenarios, which also seemed to be the one that they liked the most, they described it as compelling, is a, a future scenario where physical school locations, and I imagine this would also apply even to universities and higher education, uh, brick and mortar learning will just disappear and learning would be replaced by uh, what they called a learn as you go, anytime, anywhere type of model where using these sorts of uh, technologies, again, like AI and virtual reality, learning will happen in not this sort of structured way, but anytime, anywhere. And what this would then mean is sort of formal learning and formal education would go by the wayside. Um, and what that would then mean, presumably, is that children would be denied that, you know, that physical experience of going to school, interacting with other people, other classmates of theirs and their teachers and so on, and uh, doing things in a hands-on and in-person manner. So if everything goes virtual, for instance, well, how are children going to be um, socialized? Uh, but instead, you know, the WF doesn't answer this question. These, these sorts of uh, points do not come up in their reports anywhere. They keep touting the economic benefits of all of this, how it's going to lead to more growth, more productivity, more efficiency. Um, and uh, how there's a growing market for things like the metaverse. Uh, Bloomberg wrote uh, not too long ago that um, 
the metaverse is going to become an $800 billion market, if I remember correctly, by 2024. So just in the span of two years. So there's a lot of money that they seem to foresee is going to be involved in this, um, in this metaverse and in all of its associated technologies. And it seems like that is much more of a motivation for them uh, than any sort of uh, educational benefit. So uh, coming out of this, you hear all sorts of outlandish things, one of them being uh, a prediction that actually even appeared in The Guardian recently and in some other uh, publications, that by 2050, so less than 30 years from now, uh, people are going, it's going to be normal for people to be raising these sorts of virtual babies. Well, if you're raising a virtual baby instead of a real one, I guess the socialization issue is moot, right? Because they're just going to socialize in this metaverse. (laughs) There's not going to be any real life socialization because they're not even talking about real life children anymore. Uh, so uh, that kind of seems to be where they're headed with it. And, and uh, it seems to be a way to make money out of nothing. I mean, they're already talking about selling things like designer label clothing on the metaverse. So it'll be virtual designer clothing that he will buy. Of course, he'll buy it with real money, <laughs> not virtual money. Yeah. Uh, but it's going to be something that exists virtually. And they're just coming up with these new markets that are not only almost like conjured out of thin air, but they're not addressing any sort of actual real world need or just creating a parallel virtual world. And then they're saying, oh, well, your avatar in this world is going to have to have designer clothes, right? So we're going to sell you virtual designer clothing or your virtual self will have to like drink this trendy new soft drink where we're going to sell you this virtual trendy soft drink in the metaverse. Uh, so that's what seems to be happening. Isn't that, isn't that, and it that's all the comes thing. Back. Isn't there like yeah. a Heineken Pixel or like? I I think so. And Coca Cola has something like that as well. And it's just uh, it's just really absurd when you think about it. But it's not so absurd for these companies because they're making money from it, or they intend to make money from it, and it will be real money. It, it won't be uh, you know virtual money. Yeah, here it is. Heineken launches virtual beer. That's amazing. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. And then I was just pulling up for people um, and the, the article about um, where someone talks about this, the, the AI virtual or the AI expert talking about virtual children. Um, and the thing that always gets me is um, this idea about like the it's it's touted in this article. And I assume this is the, the woman you're talking about, uh, Katrina Campbell, um, who wrote a book, <laughs> AI by Design, A Plan for Living with Artificial Intelligence. Um, that or she's making essentially the same argument. But uh, she says virtual babies could solve some of today's most pressing issues, including overpopulation. Um, And I always get like, what do you mean overpopulation? Because like (laughs) I had this, um, I had this discussion like with a a professor of mine in university um, who I was doing a a politics class called the, the politics of sustainable development. And despite the, the, the slightly cringe um, lefty title uh, was a fantastic, fantastic module. Um, and the taught by my favorite ever professor who actually came on this show. So that was exciting. But we talked about overpopulation because I had just read um, the Dan Brown book, uh, Inferno. I don't know if you know it. Um, it, was, it was turned into a film, um, I, don't know, I don't know, like 10 years, five years ago, something like that. Anyway. Basically, the the main villain in it is he believes that there that humans are the 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 scourge of the earth that we are the virus that we are the the cancer on planet Earth and that um, he wants to create some sort of bioweapon that will like seriously reduce the population because we are the cause of all of the Earth's ills. And I read the book and was slightly co- concerned that maybe he had a point. I was like, holy shit! Like, is there too many people? Like, um, because. I never, I never really liked the idea of saying there's too many people because that seems a bit like, okay, so who do we kill? Like, the, do you know what I mean? Like, if you're going to say that that's the problem, like the next the next logical question is like, right, okay, what are we going to do about it? And then that gets real murderous, like real fast. So I never liked that question. But I, I was curious as to like whether there was like any sort of, yeah, any, any, any fruit in the argument. Um, and from like what I 
figured out at least anyway this was my take was that like it's it's going to be fine like uh, population growth like levels out as as societies become more affluent um we're already seeing like a, a, a like a dangerously like drop off in like um childbirths and and like fertility in the west which um i mean i say dangerous it's just if like if we want society to continue as we have experienced it uh that's uh, the only option is like have enough kids or um like get everyone to move here it's like one or the other but that's still like a big change for a nation like you got to do something about it or you're going to become japan we've got this rapidly aging monstrous like monstrously huge old population but anyway the the main conclusion i came to was that there was it was fine you know the the will be sweet like just as we make things more efficient which we inevitably will for just because humans are humans and as long as nothing goes like absolutely monstrously wrong um we'll continue to make things more efficient and use our resources more efficiently and then it'll be fine um was the conclusion i came to at least anyway it's not like we're gonna be clamoring for like the last patch of land as, as like the, the the population becomes so untenable so why do you think this is such an issue for people who have the resources to not give a fuck? Like why why are why are the the rich and powerful always seem to be the ones obsessed with there being too many people? That's a good question and I think a lot of it may just have to do with control. Uh the more people there are, uh they may feel that it's just more difficult to ensure control over larger populations. Mm. Uh, it may also have to do with the, uh, the efficiency that you mentioned. Uh, one of the buzzwords that's been going around for the last couple of years, or one of the catchphrases, is the fourth industrial revolution, sometimes known as the Great Reset. And uh, a lot of you know, what is part of this fourth industrial revolution um, and this Great Reset seems to have to do with automation, with making various industries and various productive practices more quote unquote efficient to the point that in many cases they will there will not be actual humans involved in that process. It'll all be done by machines and robots and so on. Um, so they may feel that they just don't need as much labor uh, or as they sometimes call us human capital. Uh, as they did in the past, because they, the factories of the future, as they imagine them, will be very different from the factories of the industrial re revolution, with workers uh, toiling away and then you know sort of being cogs in this machine, working on the assembly line. Um, if they do away with those people, those laborers, because they have different productive processes in place, uh, then. Uh, another phrase comes into the picture, which has been heard a lot over the last couple of years, useless eaters. And I think that's the mentality that with which they see a lot of the, a very large percentage of the population. Uh, if they're getting rid of more and more manual jobs and it can be done automatically uh, through you know, various new technologies and automation, well, the people that are left in their eyes may just be useless either eaters. There won't be jobs for them, but they're going to be there. They're going to have to survive, right? And eat food and live in a, some sort of dwelling somewhere, right? So, uh, so some wealthy people and some people that are involved in these sorts of things like preset and so on um, may feel that large portions of the population will end up becoming redundant. So then that brings us back to the issue that you brought up a few moments ago. Well, then, you know, how do you decide who stays and who goes? Well, I don't know how they're going to decide that question if it ever comes to it. But uh, I do think that encouraging people to not give birth is a part of it. That's kind of going to help that process along, wouldn't it? And they kind of encourage people, especially young people, they make they sort of make these things fashionable, young people, right, and trendy. So they encourage them to not have children, and they dress it up in a way that makes it seem like either it's appealing or either or or it's something that will be good for the planet, good for the environment, right? So I actually have heard a lot of young people say, "Oh, you know, I'm not going to have children because um, I'm worried about." 
the future of our planet and living a sustainable life and these sorts of things. So they've kind of gotten it already into the public consciousness and especially in the younger generations that they're doing a good thing by not having kids or, or having no desire to want children. Um, so, you know, when it comes down to it, it's a personal choice whether it's part of family or not. But I think what's happening now is when something becomes fashionable, trendy, or when it becomes encouraged, quote unquote, by uh, people that supposedly know better and that are telling you, oh, this is, you know, we have too many people in this world and we need to cut down, then it's, it's not so voluntary. They may not be putting a gun to your head and telling you don't have kids. They may not be legislating against having children, but there's kind of a soft power at play that is sort of getting this into people's uh, consciousness uh, yeah. that having children is a bad thing. And then, you know, a lot of people will change their behavior accordingly. Yeah. And I think the cost of living and the cost of raising children and surviving, like as, as, wealth and income inequality like continues to increase especially with inflation at the minute it means that like people aren't in the sort of steady stable prosperous position in which they think okay now i can start a family even if they're in like a couple already and that was sort of their plan like it's it the the, the uncertainty of the situation and the last few years and the the yeah, the turmoil and the yeah the increasing increasingly like strained budgets that people have means that they're more and more unlikely to have kids as well. I think people maybe like don't don't like take that into account as well. Although yeah, one could one could argue that that was uh, somewhat planned, but we'll not go there. Um, the I just wanted to bring up one last thing before we we finished. Actually, it, like really interestingly, because as we were talking about um, depopulation and um, you know there being too many people. Are you familiar with the Georgia Guidestones? Yes. Someone has bombed yes, the Georgia Guidestones. <laughs> you know, I, I saw that. I didn't have time to open it. It was just before we connected. Yeah, I my friend my friend texted me being like, bruh, someone, does, someone bombed the Georgia Guidestones. So if anyone doesn't know what the Georgia Guidestones are, the Georgia Guidestones are like a set of, of stones that were set out uh, in the 1980s. Um, with a bunch of commandments about how to remake society in the event of like some sort of apocalyptic destruction. Now, no one knows who who put them there, but the interesting one was one part of it called for keeping the world population at 500 million or less. Um, and someone has bombed it. Um, I believe you can see people who are watching this uh, will be able to see a thing where you can see how it's been blown up. That's absolutely awful. I mean, like, fuck their message, but I mean, it's still real interesting sight. Kind of sad that someone right, decided to bomb that, it. In, right, and this was certainly news that <laughs> caught me by surprise, even if I didn't have time to actually open up any stories about it. Yeah. Uh, are the New World Order police not yeah. watching? Like, are the FBI not, like, do they not have cameras? Come on, guys. Like, <laughs> I... I would be surprised if there weren't. I mean, at a site like that, it's, you know, it's interesting. Who takes care of the Georgia Guidestones? I mean, who do they actually belong to? I never really was able to get a clear answer to that question. The only thing I was able to read once uh, quite a while ago when I uh, was researching the, just for my own personal, you know, curiosity, the, the Georgia Guidestones, this was already maybe at least five years ago, if not more, uh, was that the name had actually been trademarked uh, soon after they were erected in the early 1980s. And I think the trademark belonged to the individual that had gone to the, uh, had basically placed the order for the uh, Guidestones to be carved. Uh, but not much seems to be known about who this person was, where they came from, where they are, where they went. Uh, the whole thing is just so hush-hush and vague. And of course, you know, that fuels all sorts of speculation as to who's behind it and for what reasons. Yeah, because yeah, the, the, the commandments are written in, in, I think, many different, well, they are definitely, I couldn't think, in eight different languages. I was just putting up some mm -hmm. photos there for people. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a really fascinating um, thing. Uh -huh. Apparently, uh, Candace Taylor, 
who is a, a candidate for the Republican nomination for governor of Georgia, made the destruction of the Guidestones one of her campaign pledges, claiming that they were a satanic evil. Ha! <laughs> what a legend. <laughs> I love people who are just unashamedly, they're just like, this is what I believe. Deal with it. It's brilliant. <laughs> Well, you know, I think in times like this, you know, when rhetoric goes to one extreme, then, um, you know, it, it, it's like, what do we say? You know, expect a, an equal but opposite reaction. People are going to go in the other extreme in response to that. So I, this may be an example of that. Anyway, um, Michael, uh, we've blasted past an hour here, so I would love to thank you for your time. I'm sure you're a busy man. Um, this has been a really fun chat. Uh, is there anything of your work that you would like to direct people towards to check out if they're if they're listening? Uh, well, uh, as I mentioned at the start, I write regularly for The Defender, which is published by Children's Health Defense. Uh, so the website for that is childrenshealthdefense.org slash defender. So all of my articles are there. I typically write about three times a week. Uh, so you could see my work and there's other excellent writers uh, at the Defender as well. You could check out their work as well. Brilliant. Well, um, thanks very much for, for uh, yeah, for chatting to me, man. Um, all the links for all the stuff that I've pulled up that people, if people have been watching, will be in the description below. I've tried to fact check um, or at least have, have sources for basically everything we've discussed. And yeah, check it out, everyone. And we'll see you next time. Thanks very much, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.